0: Over time, I began to really see that we have to think beyond the individual mind and brain. (laughs) When we think about mental illness, especially when we're talking about diverse, often marginalized populations whose lives are shaped so much by larger structural forces. So the critical consciousness framework refers to this process of beginning to see those systems of oppression and privilege and how they create structures that affect life chances for people in our community and how we are kind of complicit in upholding those structures of oppression without necessarily knowing that we are.
1: Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is clinical psychologist Doris Chang. Doris is an associate professor at the New York University Silver School of Social Work, where she studies race, ethnicity, culture, and other dimensions of social identity, focusing on how they shape psychological experience and mental health treatment. Doris has spent her career developing inclusive, culturally grounded interventions for clinical and educational contexts, and most recently has worked to integrate mindfulness and other contemplative approaches into these interventions. Our interview was recorded at the 2019 Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, where Doris was on the faculty, and she shared about an intervention she's developed for her clinical trainees called critical consciousness training. In our conversation, she describes how critical consciousness is the ability to recognize and analyze systems of inequality and the commitment to take action against these systems. We discuss how she brings critical consciousness into the classroom and how it unfolds for different student populations. She describes how race is a social construct, not a biological fact, and outlines the impact of race on a multitude of measures of well-being and health. We also discuss the role of contemplative practice in becoming aware of systems of oppression and being able to hold the unique stress and challenges that come with that awareness. We talk about her research on these training programs, and she also shares her thoughts on where contemplative science needs to go next. If you're an educator looking to bring these ideas into your classroom, or if you're just interested in understanding more about race, ethnicity, and systems of inequality, I think you'll find Doris's insights particularly informative. It was a real pleasure to speak with Doris, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. I'm happy to share with you Doris Chang. So Doris, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start just by hearing a little bit of your personal story and some of the factors that led you to where you are now in your research. So
0: I'm a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. and I think I started, you know, developing an interest in clinical psychology mostly because I was an undergraduate student and I think so, like so many undergrads, you know, you're trying to understand yourself and the world. Yeah. And I remember taking a class and the first question I had was, how does this pertain or help me understand my family and my community? And I'm Chinese American. My parents are immigrants. And we never, ever talked about mental health. Hmm. And I think it's a concept that a lot of Asian American communities sort of see as um, only affecting a very small percentage of the population. Right. So, you know, to to come from that kind of understanding and then to be in a class, you know, about abnormal psychology and then just sort of wondering like, but how does this square with my family's experience, my community's experience? Um, Because these worlds just didn't seem to connect at all. And all of the readings that we were doing had to do with mostly European American Mm -hmm. samples and populations. And so I just became really interested in how culture and ethnicity sort of shapes experience of health and mental health and started looking for other ways to expand the field of psychology towards more inclusion of diverse perspectives and so that process of kind of thinking about how we can bridge worlds was was part of my early educational thinking yeah and then when i when i entered graduate school again, this idea of bridging social worlds was also really present because I'm a, you know, I'm a clinician. Most of my patients I worked with at the beginning were not Chinese American. Mm -hmm. So I had to think about what does it mean to be in the space as someone who's not white or someone who's not black. And, uh, and then I ended up doing a lot of work with Asian immigrant communities and did a year of, of my, um, pre-doctoral training in a in an Asian-specific clinic, oh, wow, where all of my clients were Asian um, immigrants, and so that was a really interesting experience to to sort of basically be treating like people like my parents, like my you know my mother who had internalized these ideas that we don't have mental illness in our community. Right. That was going to be my question: is then well, how was your
1: experience of those people who were your patients versus maybe you know your mother's
0: views or what you had come to think? culturally? Well, some of the things I learned in school didn't work, Hmm. right? So what I realized is a lot of the patients I worked with were coming in wanting something really different than what I felt like I had to offer. Hmm. So my training in a pretty traditional clinical science program was you know even though there were there were definitely people there that were studying and interested in issues of of culture they weren't necessarily as involved in the clinical training side of things and right. so the tools that i had were were kind of mainstream and so i would go into i went into the these these settings not not quite equipped to adapt what i had learned to that population and so what, what some of the things i learned had to do with just how i needed to be willing to to offer something different. Right. And so sometimes it was psychoeducation and mm-hmm. just like, let me explain to you, you know, what it means to raise a child in the U.S. context who is growing up with different ideas about independence, for example. Mm. Did your
1: experience also as the daughter of, of immigrants help you relate to some of the struggles that they maybe were experiencing or their with their children? Or uh, I think it,
0: Made me naturally feel a kinship mm-hmm. to them. I think that there was also, you know, some positive transference to me. That it's like, oh, like you're you look like us. Right. Uh, your your Mandarin isn't totally fluent, <laughs> <laughs> but you can you know can communicate. And you know, you remind me of someone I I know and I care about. And mm-hmm. so I think that that you know kind of already helped open some doors for me in terms of the, building the alliance. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it did give me a real like, empathic understanding of the challenges of being an immigrant right. and navigating a very
1: strange place. And so now you teach and train clinicians as part of your work um, it, with a program you refer to as critical
0: consciousness. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that? Yeah. So as you probably know, um, most clinicians have to take some sort of coursework in uh, kind of diversity related areas. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good move that a lot of licensure boards are requiring coursework yeah. to prepare clinicians to to more effectively work with diverse populations. So I've been teaching that course in my program for many many years. Mm-hmm. Over time, I began to really see that we have to think beyond the individual mind and brain mm-hmm. <laughs> and heart mm-hmm. when we think about mental illness, especially when we're talking about Um, diverse, often marginalized populations whose lives are shaped so much by larger structural forces as all of our lives are shaped, but in terms of increasing vulnerability to stress and um, risks for mental health problems, uh, these these groups um, really are more vulnerable. And so the critical consciousness framework kind of refers to this process Of beginning to see those systems of oppression and privilege Mm -hmm. uh, and how they create um, structures that uh, affect life chances for people in our community Mm -hmm. and how we are kind of complicit in upholding those structures of oppression without necessarily knowing that we are so it's this process of unmasking uncovering of seeing the world differently and and also then mobilizing for action to be like a change agent in that system so it's not how we typically train clinicians at all yeah you know we we focus on the things we can control within the the 50 minute Mm -hmm. hour yeah uh but it just felt like we were asking our patients to do things and change things that were not necessarily within their control to change and then the risk is that they blame themselves for not being resilient Mm -hmm. enough or for making bad choices that these things keep happening to them or they don't keep not getting that job and keep. Right. And that's like another layer to their distress. Right. And I, I think clinicians were also feeling frustrated that the tools they had also Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily meeting the needs of those communities. So it felt like a shift in how I felt like we needed to train our, our students to look at these systems to be comfortable even talking to patients about these systems so they can properly locate the causes mm-hmm. of some of their problems. Yeah. And so, how does it look,
1: this training? Is it unfold in kind of a standard classroom setting? Or is there dialogues between races? or? Mm. Hmm.
0: Uh, so, it happens in a classroom setting. I think I'd, I'd pull on a mix of um, like experiential learning and weaving in contemplative pedagogy mm. as a, a way to help students process what they're experiencing. So it is kind of experience heavy, mm-hmm. I would say, because it's it's difficult to connect your experience to abstract theory. Yeah. So I do try to create assignments, exercises, in-class uh, simulations to mm-hmm. try to get people close to experiencing what it feels like because it's like you have to have an an emotional right awakening before you you really become motivated to to see and so I I I try to make it emotional and so I I'll start off my classes by telling people it's going to be really uncomfortable Mm. just like be be prepared and to think about is this a good semester for you to engage deeply in this work yeah so kind of a trigger warning, kind of like, uh-huh. okay, if you're going to be here together with me, this is what you're we're going to ask ask yeah. of you. Did you say that courses are required? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of them is required. Okay. So some students will say like, not this time, mm-hmm. you know, maybe next year. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing. I do try to give students space to find a personal mm, Project that deepens allows them to deepen learning in an area that they personally feel like they need it. Mm. So I think that's also part of like a contemplative pedagogy approach, which is like centering the individual learner
2: mm-hmm.
0: and helping them to um, like deeply engage in a in a very personal way with the material. And so, for some students, they might find that they 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 need to work on um, some bias against a group that mm-hmm. is getting in the way of their them being open and effective with clients from that background. Mm-hmm. And so they might define for themselves a learning project that, that maps out how they might dig into that right. work. Do you have any examples that come to mind? Yeah. I mean, I think that oftentimes uh, over the years, one group that has uh, prompted this kind of self-work for a lot of mm-hmm. students is very very religious people and and that also speaks to in our in the field of clinical work how we don't deal with spirituality and we don't deal with religion right so we don't invite in um to the work you know we don't train students how to ask about spiritual beliefs or religious identity we don't know what to do if they say they're really religious we don't know how to integrate those perspectives about health and healing and well-being into what we have to offer, and so right. I think we kind of avoid the subject altogether. Yeah, and then it perpetuates this kind of bias that like what we have to offer is better mm-hmm. <laughs> than what religion has to offer. So, so a number of students have tried to take this on mm-hmm. around like I feel myself questioning, you know, these beliefs that some um, patients have, especially very evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes even orthodox communities and just feeling like we don't get it. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't get the appeal. And in fact, it seems harmful. Yeah. So then they might define for themselves a project that really digs into unpacking that. Yeah. Wow.
1: So one of the things that you teach or you educate in these classes is the the various ways that race shapes our lives. Um, could you give some examples of the impact of social determinants of mental health and yeah. success? Yeah.
0: So uh, even though we know that race isn't real, it's not a biological fact, (laughs) it has incredible impact on our lives. Let's just Uh, unpack that for one Mm.
1: minute in case that's kind of a new idea for some people um, is what you mean that race is a construct.
0: Yeah. So any two people from two different ethnic groups may have more in common um, genetically than two people from the same sort of that look phenotypically similar. And so... It doesn't stand up as a scientific construct, yeah. concept, um, or fact. So, mm-hmm. and yet we know that we look at each other and we sort each other and we impose racial categories on each other. And the whole point of race as a construct is to oppress groups. Right. That's the function it serves in society mm-hmm. and it has always served in society. So, so on that basis, it is it is real in the world, certainly as something Mm. that shapes our lives. And it shapes every aspect of life, every aspect of life. So it affects, you know, maternal and infant mortality rates. It affects um, the safety and funding of your schools. Mm. It it shapes um, the likelihood that you'll graduate from high school, get into college, be on a pathway to have upward mobility, get good jobs. You know, quite a lot of research has shown that if your name is uh, readily associated with a racial category, some of this work is focused on black and white job mm-hmm. applicants. Mm-hmm. That applicants with a white-sounding na- name are are more likely to be interviewed right. and called in for a job interview than people who have black-sounding names. So, mm-hmm. it's hard to know how conscious it is all the time, uh, but it is it is present. Right. It's present in every aspect of our our lives, and and obviously likelihood of being stopped and frisked and pulled over and given a um, harsh jail sentence and all of those those outcomes to looking at the causes of death so african americans i think have the highest rate of risk for eight to ten of the leading causes of death so mm-hmm. it, it affects your ability to, to be a healthy functioning person in the world
1: what are some of the lessons
0: that you've learned and taken away from all your work and in, in teaching this? So the first thing I think I mentioned is I, I prepare students that it's going to be a rocky ride. Yeah. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be holding hands and singing Bob Marley songs. <laughs> it's, it's going to be really, really painful and it can't not be painful. I've, I've actually wondered, is it possible to not make it painful because it's distressing for me to witness yes, too. You know, it's I'm like, sure. if I could figure out a way to help people really, really understand um, the effect of racism and other forms of oppression on all of us without the the grief that comes yeah. with that seeing. I, w- I wish I could figure out how to do that, but I, I have, I don't think it's possible. Yeah, it seems necessary. It also raises questions of about like, why haven't I suffered? Mm. Right. You're telling me all of these people have suffered. Mm-hmm. How is it that I'm where I am and they're where they are Mm. uh, isn't I don't want to see it. And so so it's really painful that I'm in a position to be asking or asking students to open to suffering um, as a way of of living in in reality. Yeah.
1: Can you describe in a little more detail what it might be like and what some of the common experiences that come up for um, Mm. white people versus people of color and like kind of the different ways that this information hits them?
0: Yeah. It's very, it's it's different and it's the same, mm. right? So I'll start with the students of color. So students of color, in my experience in the classes, um, find it incredibly painful to be reminded mm-hmm. of the role that race plays in their lives. And partially that's because I think for a lot of students of color, when they enter the academy, when they're in an educational institution, we essentially ask them to be white. Mm. So mm-hmm. we reward that. Assimil- we re- 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 reward assimilation, and so they come into the class and they're trying. They're trying to hide those parts of themselves because we ask them to, mm. right? Oftentimes, we implicitly ask them to mm. in, in institutions of higher education. And it's become a survival strategy if they can if they can downplay it they often will, mm-hmm. and and yet I'm bombarding them with messages about their community, right? Um, that remind them of their risk factors and of their race, and and then bombard them with those messages of trauma, you know, mm-hmm. in in the in the interest of learning. So that's so, that can be so so painful. Yeah. Um, and also I'm getting students who are often undergraduates or graduate students and so they're at the early or mid stage of really unpacking their own racial and ethnic identity and mm-hmm. what it means to them mm-hmm. so it's a really active process of figuring it, yeah. it out and it's hard to do that in a interracially mixed classroom when let's say half of the students are white or more and they're for the first time beginning to awaken to the reality of racism yeah. so I think that's really, really challenging for those students. Yeah. And then for the for the white students, I see a lot of guilt and shame, mm-hmm. especially if this is new material for them. Yeah. And then rage at parents, at educational institutions, at you know other people in their lives who somehow let them believe something that isn't true mm-hmm. about. What it means to be white mm. in this country, so there there's a lot of like denial like how could I be twenty one and not know about this mm-hmm. um, and then a lot of often a lot of shame about that and then just kind of a little bit of a falling apart you know some of it's developmental yeah and some of it is is uh, is is just you know meeting this content um, for the first time mm. and this is a very natural arising of sadness in in response to something very very sad yeah yeah
1: how do you handle that as a teacher every semester holding this I all know. of the
0: students um uh, it it is really tough yeah it's gotten easier at the very beginning of my teaching career students would say things that were actually personally hurtful to me as a person of color not intending to but you know out of thoughtlessness Mm. out of um, not necessarily seeing me as a person of color or intentionally wanting to harm me because I was forcing them to feel things that they didn't want. And I was insecure about how well I was doing in teaching this difficult material. And then it just, it got easier and easier. I think I became more comfortable in understanding how to facilitate the process better. I think I became more part of a community of people who were doing this work and, and just the support of, of that was incredibly helpful and nurturing. Yeah. Um, And then I think I just became like sort of on a mission about it, you know, like it, it felt very important. Mm -hmm. And, and so having uh, your value, you know, engaging in, in this is my clinician side and value congruent action. You know, I was doing something that I really believed in, even if it was hard, it was okay.
1: Because I really believed in what I was yeah. doing, and that helped. I can imagine one of the complexities is that it's also not each individual person changing, but then there's the community in the classroom that's interacting. How does that play out? Yeah,
0: so that's the second thing that I, that I I learned. Like I, you know, the the researcher side of me wants this to be a nice, neat, linear process right. in the way that we want to think about psychotherapy processes being this linear mm. journey. And so to think about it, each individual learner and their individual path is one way to think about learning. But the reality is that it it's so messy mm-hmm. with this material and probably in all classrooms, but especially with this material, because like, let's say, uh, you know, I'm a student of color processing my own experience of race and grieving the experience mm-hmm. of my community and then sitting with. You know, what does that mean for me as a clinician in training? And I'm speaking about that experience. You know, what happens when another student directly challenges my experience? Mm-hmm. And in fact, with some aggression, argues that my experience actually is causing harm to, to them. Mm. Right? So it's it's a dyadic and, and also group process that you're... Your own capacity to learn and grow kind of depends on the whole group nurturing that process and what happens when some people are not facilitating that process. What do you do with that? It's really, it's really complicated. Yeah. And that's the reality of, of being in a multicultural society. Right. So I think the best thing I've thought to do with it is to allow that process to play out within some constraints mm-hmm. that try to minimize harm. Mm-hmm. And so we'll have agreements about how we wanna communicate with one another and the kind of culture we wanna create in the classroom so that we're monitoring impact. Yeah. It can't just be a free for all. It can't mm-hmm. be, you know, you could say whatever you want, even though it's your truth, like it, it, we have to be invested in everybody's collective learning. And so creating that norm gives us a little bit of something to fall back on. But then there's so much to be learned in unpacking whatever it is that happens, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not going to be the first and only time something like that happens for any of the people in the room. And so the opportunity is for us to be able to come and understand and analyze what happened in a way that allows us to be more prepared for the next time it happens and for us to be more skillful in how we negotiate that.
1: Yeah, so I'm just curious. What are some of those agreements that you have, or with the students have with each other about how they're going to treat each other?
0: So again, with a contemplative stance, um, one one thing is to create an environment that is open and curious and kind mm-hmm. with each other and with ourselves, uh, because I know that students come in and, and feel a lot of worry and and anxiety about the class and worry about harming others Mm -hmm. you know we're inherently kind people (laughs) and we don't want to harm other people but the reality is that sometimes we will unintentionally harm each other and so to to try to assume good intention to take responsibility for the harm we might cause despite that uh, and to try to not participate in in shame shaming Mm -hmm. each other or like holding shame Mm -hmm. in ourselves so one is like that just holding that that mindful attitude um we we will also try to monitor like traditional power dynamics that get enacted all the time where we see white students talking more than students Mm. of color we see male students talking more than women Mm -hmm. and and people kind of claiming authority to speak Mm. and so you know we we do try to to name that and make that conscious in the agreements about monitoring your participation. Yeah. Like we want people to bring, um, their selves, their full selves to the table and to create space and make space for everybody else to do that also. Mm -hmm. One that a student added this year was no tone policing. So don't judge the way that I'm communicating about Mm. my experience, even if it, even if it makes you
1: uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. So, if someone feels that you're communicating in anger, angry tone, or
0: yeah, it's allowable. like they're angry. Yeah. yeah right. And also, it's good training. I mean, we're clinicians in training, yes. right? So, it's like if you can't tolerate somebody's authentic anger about something that's affecting them, you might be in the it's wrong a larger profession. problem
2: <laughs> for your yeah.
1: career. Right. So, how did um, contemplative practice and mindfulness come into this space for you? It came into this
0: space probably about five years ago, mm-hmm. maybe six, maybe, yeah, about five years ago, I was uh, doing a training at the Nalanda Institute in contemplative psychotherapy mm-hmm. and gravitated to it because I was feeling like I was needing more tools to, to show up, you know, with more resources for this work. And I was getting really depleted, mm-hmm. you know, as we've talked about, it's pretty stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there was more and more being published about the potential benefits of contemplative practice for um, emotional regulation mm-hmm. and for centering and grounding and coping and all of those things. And so I, I actually first came to it for me, mm-hmm. to support me in, in doing this yeah. work. And then as I learned more about it, I, I really started to open to the potential that it could actually... It could be a, a, a support to my students mm-hmm. as well. And and so I just started experimenting with, with, with weaving it in in different ways and increasingly have made it more and more explicit and more integral to my approach to teaching.
1: Cool, so do you do meditations in class? Do the students have to agree to meditate outside
0: of class? Uh, we do do meditations in class. Mm-hmm. I do ask them and it's in the syllabus that they're required to try a formal meditation practice if they don't do it, they don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the expectation mm-hmm. that that they try it. And I explained to them the, the science behind sort of the current state of knowledge about meditation and its, its effects and how it's been studied in a variety of different ways and try to make the case for why I think it could be helpful to them personally, uh, separately from its uh, ability to help them maybe sit with the difficult emotions they might experience in class. Mm-hmm. So I give them some resources, there's some structured apps that I, I suggest for them, and and then we check in about it um, throughout the course. And then at various times in the course, we will do formal sits. So especially at the very beginning of mm-hmm. the course, we do, a, we, we meditate almost every class period for at least some period of time. Mm-hmm. And I want to expose them to different kinds of meditation because mm-hmm. I I'm hoping that there will be something that resonates for them. And I also have been trying to increasingly expose them to uh, different teachers. Uh, So playing guided meditations for them so they see um, like especially exposure to to teachers of color, Dharma Mm -hmm. teachers of color, uh, or teachers who are just sort of modifying um, how how it is that they're working to make it a better fit for communities of Mm -hmm. color. I also try to support and troubleshoot them as they're developing the practice because mm-hmm. I feel like as a first-time meditator there's a lot that comes a lot up. of questions yeah <laughs> it's really hard yeah you know you you feel like you're doing everything wrong you know and so I'm not formally trained in as a meditation teacher mm-hmm. so you know I can't I can only go so far in terms of how much I can support yeah. that process but I but we do spend time discussing barriers to to practice
1: So you were recently awarded a peace grant from Mind and Life um, to study uh, the effects of including this, this kind of mindfulness or contemplative component in the training that you do. Can you describe a little bit about your study and what you were hoping to
0: look at? Sure. So this is a, a collaboration with um, several wonderful colleagues at NYU Steinhardt in the School of Ed. So Fabienne Doucet and Natalie Zwerger. So she and her team have been rolling out uh, a critical consciousness curriculum for, I think, K through 12 teachers, actually, for a few years now. Mm -hmm. And it's really grown and it's been transformative for the teachers who who do it. And so they have this packaged curriculum that they've adapted to um, to be as long or short in some ways as schools can accommodate. And so I'm partnering with them to see if we can boost the effects of that curriculum by infusing mindfulness and other contemplative components into that work. Because in conversations with with Natalie, it's clear that the dynamics and processes that I see in the the work I do shows up in the trainings that she does as well. Um, And the the goal with with any of these critical consciousness programs, I think, is to to help teachers. In her case, she's focusing on teachers— to help them think differently, to be able to be culturally responsive in the classroom and to help them dismantle these deeply embedded structures yeah. of oppression that show up in those classrooms mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So it's a way of seeing, it's a way of being in the classroom, and then it, it should, that consciousness should trickle into their pedagogy and into their curriculum. So we're trying to um, test uh, this infused mindfulness-based critical consciousness curriculum against two different control groups. So one is just the pure critical consciousness mm-hmm. program, the thing they they do, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, a standalone mindfulness intervention mm-hmm. for teachers. Mm-hmm. And that comes from a sort of basic question that uh, other researchers are, are starting to look at, which or have been looking at, which is can cultivating mindful awareness or compassion can that in itself reduce implicit bias Mm, and increase compassion and pro-sociality? Right. So is there a way that even without explicit training and teaching and critical consciousness, without having those frameworks, um, do we still see some positive effects just of mindfulness training alone?
1: Right. Which some research is starting to show in other
0: groups, right? Right. So some research is starting to show that even with very brief, Mindfulness inductions, mm-hmm. um, we can see some temporary decreases in implicit bias. Mm-hmm. So the the question for me is is kind of like, you know for people who, let's say do not want to take a critical consciousness class is is having them take a mindfulness class um, paired with good intention? Like what happens with paired with good intentions, mm-hmm. um, does mindfulness training lead to similar, Pro-social outcomes in terms of the teachers being able to relate with less bias to, say, students of color mm-hmm. in their classes, uh, even without the the pedagogical kind of frameworks that that we're trying to infuse into the other curriculum. Okay. What are the ways in which doing standalone critical consciousness training elicits so much dysregulation? Mm. And distress in teachers that they can't even it, it it cannot translate into action mm-hmm. could be inhibiting um, could yeah. be inhibiting their ability to manifest that that awareness and knowledge in right. behavior um, and then seeing if those two groups differ from this sort of hybrid mm-hmm. and curriculum to mm-hmm. where we're hopefully can we can hopefully draw on the benefits of both of those practices um, in a single standalone right. intervention and so how will you measure? The outcomes. Uh,
1: what are you hoping to be able to observe?
0: We are we're starting with um, self-report and also uh, implicit measures of racial bias. Mm-hmm. So self-report of things like multicultural teaching competency, uh, mindfulness in teaching. Um, it's a there's a new relational mindfulness measure that's looking at teacher practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at attitudinal barriers um, such as. Uh, we have some measures for the white teachers in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa Spanierman has a scale looking at the perceived costs of racism for whites, mm. uh, how they deal with the reality of racism in terms of defenses and denial and how it affects their kind of engagement mm-hmm. um, with mm-hmm. people of color. Uh, we also are looking at um, typical measures of that are often studied in mindfulness studies like compassion, mm-hmm. um, uh, burnout, Um stress yeah and things like that yeah. so that's that's where we're starting and and if the data look good you know it, our our goal we would like to do is look at classroom behavior and classroom yeah. dynamics yeah and how's it going so far so we finished our first year uh-huh. we ran our two control groups uh it was challenging yeah. um some of the challenges we encountered were retention. So mm-hmm. teachers are, are very, very busy. Mm-hmm, um, sure. And we were doing a 10-week training that um, met every week mm-hmm. throughout the fall because we wanted to look at its effects over the course of the academic year. Right. So we had baseline Stand measures. The they did the training. They wrapped it up before winter break. And then we tracked them. Our time three um, data collection just is currently happening. Mm-hmm. So the first problem was... That we had difficulty retaining teachers in, in the study, so we ended up with about a forty percent um, dropout rate, mm. which is not what we predicted. Yeah, um, but it turns out it's it's not that atypical. Um, it's a very you know it's a very busy, stressed population <laughs> to yeah, work with, definitely. and we were asking that they come to our campus to receive the training. So yeah. people were coming from all over. Yeah. and But one thing that was troubling that we need to figure out is we saw different rates of dropout by ethnicity hmm. um, for the two different groups. So we saw better retention of white participants in the mindfulness group, like much better retention. Hmm. It was something like 85% of the whites that started the mindfulness group stayed uh-huh. in the mindfulness group whereas over 60% of the people of color who started in the mindfulness group dropped out. Wow. So, and we, then we saw the reverse pattern happen for the critical consciousness huh. control group where, where more than half of the white participants dropped out wow. of the group and almost all of the participants of color stayed. Wow. Um, Do you have initial thoughts about why that might be the case? <sighs> so one question... I think has to do with how we recruit you know, sort of the messaging in mm-hmm. recruitment and uh, and we did hear from some of the folks in the mindfulness group that they thought they were going to get pedagogy, oh, right. so yeah. we were recruiting teachers uh-huh. for a study on effectiveness in the classroom right. effectiveness in diverse classroom spaces broadly defined because we had a we did we did expect that. Mindful awareness would improve teaching, and other studies have found that it has improved. It improves teaching practice, right. right? Right. So it felt like we were accurately reporting on what we think and believe. But I think what they were expecting yeah. is more strategies mm-hmm. for engaging diverse learners in their classroom. They mm-hmm. wanted the other curriculum, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I, I feel like if we had given them a choice, they would have chosen right the, the critical consciousness because they're randomized to the groups. So yeah. yeah. Exactly. So they didn't get to choose. Mm -hmm. We stratified assignment on the basis of race Uh or race and ethnicity so that we could have equal numbers of of white and people of color teachers in both groups. But then it was randomized. So, you know, I think that was a real challenge. But it's interesting that even not getting what they wanted, more of the white teachers stayed in the mindfulness group than the teachers of color. Yeah. And then for the other group, I don't know why the white teachers didn't stay, because they ended up getting what they sort of bit more expected, which Mm -hmm. is a regular kind of diversity training for teachers. Uh, But they didn't, we weren't, we didn't retain them in the same, at the same rate. The other factor is the race and ethnicity of the trainer of the, who was facilitating the group. So the mindfulness group was facilitated by a white man, an expert in mindfulness, Uh very experienced teacher Uh, and the critical consciousness group was facilitated by a black woman. Oh, that could be a major factor. It could be a major factor. And so we know from mental health studies that ethnic matching um, can sometimes improve uh, retention Mm -hmm. in in mental health treatment. And and oftentimes clients do have preferences. They feel naturally more comfortable. There's more credibility sometimes with uh, a clinician that's, that's... of your same background. Right. I don't know how this might have played out in this situation. I don't really know the research on that for this context, but that might have also contributed
1: to it. Right. And that's really tough. It's hard to match either way and then, or it's
0: almost like you want to co-teach them both with
1: a person of color and a white person. Yes.
0: Well, for the hybrid curriculum, um, we are actually going to have a co-teaching model because it felt like we needed to, to really, see what it would look like to have both of those components delivered with fidelity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and right now we don't have anybody who can, right. and so we are going to have a co-teach model for the hybrid yeah. um, trial for the fall.
1: So from all of your experience um, doing this work, where do you think the field should go from here? What are the kind of the most needed directions
0: or changes? Uh, one of the things I have liked about the studies I've read is that there is an elegance to their experimental designs. Mm-hmm. That's, that's you know, easy to draw, causal, you know, some causal um, interpretations from the data. But given how I'm trying to pull from that science space, The reality is that the work that I do is dyadic, it's group based. And so I'd like to see more studies that are looking at like relational factors, Mm -hmm. uh, relational mindfulness, uh, relational outcomes, how people with different levels of mindfulness or critical consciousness, when they interact what happens mm. um, if you sort of stratify these two different dimensions of critical consciousness and mindfulness across different groups of people, mm-hmm. you know, what kinds of um, group based outcomes do you see and how can we measure those yeah. processes, the messiness of that yes. network yep. doing this work together? I think another question is is also looking at this question of who are our samples? Yeah. So just in my own study, right. seeing the the difficulty retaining people of color in a mindfulness group, I, I wonder how much that is happening across the board in this field. Yeah. And is this knowledge base being built on mostly white undergraduates or white practitioners? And what are the implications? Yes. Uh, of that yeah. for our field? I imagine
1: it is so far, unfortunately, for the most part. One of the things we're trying to do with our grants programs is now require um, all of our grantees for their studies to include uh, what's called constraints on generality statements. So Mm. being very clear in your methods and even in your discussion, you know, what your sample population was and how this can or cannot be um, generalized to other populations. And so that's something that, you know, you would think would be already automatic in all research protocols but it hasn't been you know in in many fields so we're hoping to at least for our community you know help people be aware of that and start to either recruit more diverse samples or at least just raise awareness about the people that they are studying
0: yeah that's really important so
1: any other thoughts on issues for the field to be considering
0: Um, I I mean, I also think maybe I I know the field is is grappling with how we've we've secularized these traditional spiritual traditions. And one of the things that struck me in uh, in reading the mindfulness literature is and and especially the therapy literature Mm -hmm. is how few of those studies looking at mindfulness based clinical interventions have included. Asian Americans, mm, you know, yeah. that many of them are Buddhist. <laughs> many right. of them come from these that's the tradition traditions. Traditions, and I'm from. like, why haven't, why is hasn't this taken off within the the yeah. Asian immigrant community, who you'd think would be the target population? Yeah, right? that's a very interesting question. Um, and my colleague Gordy Hall has written about this question of of why, what, where are the Asian Americans in mindfulness? research. Right. And I think one of the points, uh, that he's written about and that, that I've written about is that I think it has to do with this, this, the focus on the individual and individual flourishing Mm. versus collective flourishing and sort of the Asian model of the self is more, more interdependent by, by culture, you know, like our cultural socialization is more interdependent. So, um, I think the, the way that that modern mindfulness is being packaged, which is about a self flourishing. It's very
1: individualized. doesn't
0: yeah. really resonate very much with mm. Asian communities often who, who, who do not reify the self in that way, or it's not a personal goal to be personally happy.
1: Right. it's not as valuable. Right. And it's also interesting because now you hear of um, Asian cultures in Asia taking back up these practices from the western secularized versions back into the cultures in which they originated but now in this new form yeah that's unrecognizable yeah right? right which is a whole other question of what is attracting them to this and um what the impacts will be and yeah well thank you so much for joining us today it's been great to talk to you it's been great to talk to you Wendy. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There, you can also support our work, including this podcast.